0: Strange Stories UK here, Series 2, Episode 22. I've called this one Bawley Rectory Hysteria, starring Harry Price. Well, I've wanted to make a podcast on Bawley for sentimental reasons, as years ago, when I was still a teenager and just passed my driving test, some friends and I made the 150-mile odd journey to visit and spend a night at Borley after we discovered that it was said to have been the most haunted house in England. We first became aware of Borley by reading about it in the Guinness Book of Records. Then I ordered a copy of The Most Haunted House in England by Harry Price from my library and after reading the book decided that I wanted to see the area for myself. So Given the subject matter, this podcast is going to be long and doomed to have a low download figure, as most of my paranormal episodes seem to have half the download figures compared to the the crime podcasts. But as I make podcasts for my own enjoyment, this is not a significant factor in my choice of it as a subject To make it easier I've divided it into two podcasts, the second being available a day or two after this one. Although Borley is famous for its paranormal history this podcast is mainly concerned with the people involved in the Borley story as I think you will hear there are some strange characters. In some respects it could be made into a comedy program like Father Ted, although there are some tragic figures And as my daughter observed, madness seems to attract madness. When my friends and I visited the site, the house had long been demolished and we spent the night at Borley Churchyard. The church was open and there was a little pamphlet about ghosts asking visitors visitors to remain respectful of the church and the surrounding area. Despite our overactive imaginations, I don't recall anything happening other than an uncomfortable night sleeping in survival bags after drinking quarter bottles of whiskey. We also visited a National Trust property, Melford Hall that was close by and several public houses. Borley has had so much publicity and so much written about it, there have been different views popular at different times. At first many thought it was a genuine haunting then there was a backlash and it was thought a huge hoax that was carried out by different people for different purposes. Usually I would take the Society of Psychical Research line, the SPR, on what the most likely truth is, but even this is confused, and they seem to pull their punches due to jealousies and hate that seems to have caused by those taking different views. There's a lot of politics involved regarding Borley, that continues to the present time. Harry Price stated, I wonder how many of my readers are aware of the number of squabbles, petty jealousies and open feuds that are taking place amongst those investigating psychic phenomena. I'd imagine that Harry said this with his tongue in his cheek, as he did very little to bring the two different factions together. I will state at the outset that I think that the main driver of the Bawley story was Harry Price, He was a deeply flawed personality and to quote The Economist magazine Price was a rogue, a falsifier and a manufacturer of evidence. There was a taint of corruption in everything that Price was involved in. He wanted to make money out of things he was interested in. At the time of the hauntings being publicized Price had so many supporters, goodwill and good press that it was difficult to say anything against him for the fear of upsetting and engaging the wrath of his followers. Price's story had such an influence on those visiting the site, that the simplest things that were to happen at Borley, such as a tape recorder failing to work properly, or losing a pencil, or a dog refusing to enter a building, were all given examples of supernatural forces at work. If there was any discussion of a haunted house or poltergeist activity anywhere in the UK, the now by famous Henry Price was always to ask his opinion. However, even Price's supporters say he worked on two levels, one as an experienced psychical researcher and another as a self-interested publicist. It was said that the bawley case is an admirable example of the difficulties of psychical research in ascertaining what actually happened in dealing with the people concerned. Especially in deciding between all the interpretations put forward, entangled, as they often are, with assumptions, suspicions, emotions, and sometimes deliberate deceit. Anyhow, let us consider Baldy Rectory. Bawley rectory was built in 1863 under the orders of the Reverend Henry D. E. Bull. He lived there with his family of 14 children. It was a large red-bricked house of about 30 rooms in the Essex countryside, miles from anywhere. It would not have won any design awards. After various extensions, including a wing built in 1875, The house surrounded a courtyard in the centre. It was built on the site of the previous Herringham Rectory, and that was built on the site of a Tudor Rectory. Next door, within spitting distance, was the Rectory Cottage, built around 1800. That was quite a substantial building, and originally used as a coach house. The Bull family were related... uh, to the aristocratic Waldegrave family, who had been the original lords of the manor. The Bull family were thought to have been part of the Boleyn family, changing their name to Bull after their probable ancestor, Queen Anne Boleyn, was executed by Henry VIII. Henry Bull was nicknamed Old Bull. He was considered something of a tyrant during his time as Rector of Borley between. 1862 and 1892. He was a typical wealthy squire parson and felt enabled to lash out at locals with his whip if they did not move out of his way or he was unhappy with their attitude. His family owned a lot of land in the area. At least one rectory maid, a Katie Borham, had given birth at the rectory to a child fathered by... Henry Bull, and both Katie and the child died, or were perhaps murdered. It's thought there'd been other servants impregnated by the local rector, and dying through poisoning, possibly poisoned in an attempt to get rid of an unborn child. These stories were covered up due to the deference towards the influential Bull family. Henry Bull lived up to his name, a bull of a man, broad-shouldered and strong, who liked boxing and hunting, and he only wore clerical dress on Sundays. Bull had at least 14 children and was interested in the paranormal, and was said to spend a lot of time in the summer house in the rectory garden, communicating with spirits. It seemed quite normal in the Bull household to accept ghosts as a fact. Henry Bull died of tertiary syphilis in the blue room of the rectory blue room being the master bedroom, he died in 1892 being succeeded as rector by his son, also called Henry Ball, but was known as Harry, Harry F Ball, who was aged 30. Harry was born out of wedlock and remained a bachelor until he was 49 years of age in 1911. Then he became unhappily married, being many rows with his wife. And when his wife moved in, the rest of the Bull family moved out to a Chiltern lodge at the nearby town of Sudbury. Ivy, who was Harry's wife, was not popular with his family, being accused of marrying for money. And when Harry died, again, there were allegations that she had poisoned him. One of Harry's university friends was P. Shaw Jeffrey who would come and stay at the rectory and who claimed to have witnessed several incidents of phenomena but these may have been due to practical jokes played against him. His items went missing and then they were returned. There were different cliques of bull children living there at the time and it's quite likely that there would have been a lot of larking around in the house and an earnest character such as Shaw Jeffrey would have been an ideal target for bored idle minds. Shaw Geoffrey described Harry Bull as often falling asleep and it was thought that he may have suffered from narcolepsy. He said that Harry always seemed very interested in the subject of ghosts. It's said or it's been suggested that the visions of ghosts claimed by Harry Bull may have been hallucinations related to his narcolepsy. Harry seemed well-liked although he was eccentric and was always interested in anything ghostly and in life after death and he seemed to collect stray cats which he fed near the summer house in the gardens where like his father he would often communicate with the spirits. In 1900 four of the Bull sisters are said to have seen the apparition of a nun on the rectory lawn. A ghost nun was first supposedly seen in 1890 The nun is supposedly seen at intermittent periods. The house had a reputation for being haunted, possibly due to Henry and Harry Ball speaking of their experiences. It seemed that both the Reverend Balls loved to tell tales of ghosts and folklore to anyone who would listen and publicised locally that the rectory was haunted. The rectory gave the appearance of a popular image of a haunted house. The bull family seemed rather strange and hysterical, and some of their claims could be described as uh, self-deceiving. There' was also stories of uh, apparitions of a phantom coach and horses, both being seen and heard during the time the bulls were living in the rectory. The most famous sighting is uh, during the period of World War I, when an Edward Cooper saw the phantom coach and horses for 30 seconds such sightings being recorded in all the books written on the bawdy hauntings. What is not recorded is that uh, Mrs Bull, the Miss Bulls, kept an old-fashioned coach which was used frequently by an elderly cousin in her visits around the neighbourhood. During his time at the rectory their cousin, Lionel Foyster, would joke that he wished that the headless coachman would give them a lift to Sudbury, the nearest town, as the bus service was so unreliable. The villagers all knew about the, the coach, and it seemed that no one mentioned it. This is the coach that was owned by the Bull family. And the coach was used in use up to the 1930s. and It was not unusual at this time, in such rural areas, to be ferried around by pony and trap. In 1927, Harry Bull died, like his father, in the blue room at the rectory. The blue room later being stated as the room which experienced the most paranormal activity and where the seances were usually held. If you look at a photograph of the rectory, the blue room is the window in the middle above the glass, the glazed veranda on the first floor. Second floor for any possible American listeners. There was difficulty in finding a successor, and the rectory stayed empty for some months after Harry died. The post had been offered to twelve clergymen, all who turned down the opportunity to be the rector of Borley Church. On October 1928, the Reverend G. Eric Smith, a large cheerful man, became rector. But he regretted moving into Borley almost as soon as he arrived. He had taken on the house unseen, organised by the local bishop. The Smiths were arriving from India. Smith was to say that the house brought his wife Mabel close to a nervous breakdown. Mabel described the rectory as being enormous, an enormous house with 23 rooms, being connected by three staircases on two main floors, with much cellar space and storage room in the roof. There was no central heating, no gas, no electricity, no mains water. The water supply was a well in the yard. The house was cold, draughty and depressing. And it was in a state of disrepair and infested with rodents. Attached to the house was a cottage, stables, harness rooms and there were acres of garden. It was a daunting prospect for an elderly couple coming straight from the warm climate of India and the comparative luxury of the life of an Englishman in the British Raj. The Smiths, being new to the district, were unaware of the stories of the hauntings, but they cannot have been left long in ignorance. Everyone in the locality knew the stories, and the Smiths hired an impressionable local girl, Mary Pearson, who was well aware of the history. The Smiths said that they laughed at the towers of ghosts and ghostly activities. The Reverend Smith did not believe in ghosts. But they said they were worried over the fact, well this is the Smiths were worried over the fact, that their parishioners may refuse to come to the rectory for meetings because of the reputation of the house. So in their naivety they decided to approach a psychical research society hoping to obtain authoritative verdict that there was nothing sinister about the place, hoping to reassure their fearful parishioners. The Smiths wrote to the Daily Mirror newspaper, asking for help in contacting a psychical research group. The alternative explanation being that the Smiths appealed to move out of the house, but the Bishop did not respond. So they had to convince the diocese that they had good reason to move. They now knew of the haunted reputation of the house and used that as leverage. It's claimed that they were using the haunting or the haunted reputation of the building in an attempt to find an excuse to leave, which is pretty much what Mabel Smith later admitted to. There does seem to be a difference in the types of hauntings up to 1929. During the time of the Bull family, the reports were usually of ghosts But during the time of the Smiths, the reported phenomena was predominantly of a poltergeist type. June 1929. The Smiths had written to the Daily Mirror alleging the hauntings, and the newspaper sends a reporter, Vernon Wall, to investigate. Wall spent a week at the rectory, chronicling ghostly tales for his Mirror readers who were the Mirror being desperate for interesting stories to counter their reputation at the time as the Mirror being a boring newspaper. Wall was ready to believe anything as long as he could make a good story from it. The Smiths told Wall about the hauntings and the legend that were claimed for the house, and he told his readers about his experiences and those experiences of people that he talked to. He told of the seances in the Blue Room, and he happily wove all these tales into stories. Unfortunately, Wall was never questioned by anyone or ever spoke of his experience after posting his final report on the 17th of June, 1929. The Daily Mirror further embellished the stories Wall sent in, talking of the rectory being built on the site of a great monastery during the medieval period, which was not true and how there was a passionate love affair between a nun and a coachman, and the coachman was lynched and the nun, the nun was bricked up alive in the walls. The nun's ghost was said to reappear on the anniversary of her death, at 9pm on the 28th of July each year. All total nonsense. As other newspapers pointed out, That coaches came long after the dissolution of the monasteries, but that wasn't going to spoil a good story for the mirror who first reported the story on the 10th of June, 1929. A character about to enter the story was Harry Price, who had been tipped off by the Mirror newspaper about the story. Harry Price was born in Holborn, London in 1881. He left school after failing his engineer exams and took a job with Edward and Saunders. Edward Saunders, I beg your pardon, where he worked as a travelling salesman and he studied electrical engineering and other subjects at college in the evenings. Price was an energetic man with various interests. He'd been interested in the paranormal from an early age and wrote for various local newspapers, primarily on archaeology, where his reputation for honesty was being questioned over his ability to find clean antiquities. Price was exposed as a cheat, in particular over his claim at finding a Roman silver ingot which proved a forgery. It was joked by fellow members of the Sussex Archaeological Society that whenever Price went for a walk, he would invariably find a lost treasure. Some people thought that Price may have had some part to play in the Piltdown Man fraud, being friendly with Charles Dawson, the fraudulent archaeologist who was also a member of the Sussex Archaeological Society. Price was also found to be a a plagiarist in the newspaper articles he wrote and he was thought to pilfer items from museums. Harry also had a tendency to give himself unearned initials to his name. For example in 1902 he joined the Royal Astrological Society and then he called himself Harry Price M.R.A.S. He was eager for social inclusion, and would forge friendships to further his reputation. Harry was a man on the make; he married for money, so he could be semi-independent, only having to work part time. Said that he had a sexist marriage, but many affairs and lovers. Harry Price joined the SPR the Society of Psychological Research in nineteen twenty, and the Magic Circle in nineteen twenty-two becoming an amateur conjurer. Then he made a name for himself for exposing fraudulent mediums. He was knowledgeable knowledgeable about the tricks employed and became quite well known for exposing mediums, and he later exposed well-known mediums such as Helen Duncan and Elaine Garrett. Rudy Schneider was another medium investigated by Price, Price writing a book about Rudy. And it was indeed the Rudy case that caused the rift between Price and the SPR. The British SPR, Society for Psychological Research, were about to bring Rudy to the UK for a more extensive series of tests of his mediumship. When Price published a doctored photograph taken by an infrared camera, alleging that the medium was a blatant fraud. The publicity was such that it was impossible to continue the experiments. After Price's death the original of the photograph was found amongst his archive and was found to be a fake by Price. But others claimed that the photo was genuine and that Rudy was a fraud, which he almost certainly was. The SPR at that time had an influential spiritualist faction who were angry with Price who they considered an arrogant upstart. The group were also angry with Price for exposing William Hope, the spirit photographer. Price was amongst one of several that exposed Hope, with many members of the SPR thinking that Price and his supporters were anti-spiritualist. Harry Price claims that he was bullied within the uh, SPR and fell out with several members over the tactics he used for exposing the false mediums. This gave Price the incentive to set up a rival organisation called the National Laboratories for Cyclical Research in 1926. I think Price realised that he could not bend the SPR to his wishes. There were too many influential people in the hierarchy who thought he was a chancer. And there was not the money-making opportunities for him to exploit within the SPR. So it was better for him to start his own organisation. Harry charged membership fees for those joining his exclusive members' club, the National Laboratories, which proved a useful source of income for him when he became a household name and people applied to join his association. Harry was a self-publicist and a borderline charlatan who could not stop himself from crossing the line from time to time. But by the late 1920s, Harry... ...was regarded as one of the leading authorities on ghosts in haunted houses. I like the quote of Robert Aikman, who knew Price well, and said of him... ...Price's love of public speaking was only equaled by his badness as a public speaker. But Price travelled the country publicising cases that the public wanted to hear about... ...and he knew what the public wanted. For example, the Joanna Southcott box... Joanna Southcott was a religious fanatic who claimed to be a prophetess and somehow managed to gain some support in the West Country. She had a box that was supposed to be opened in the time of a dire national emergency and in the presence of 24 bishops. Price was supposed to have got hold of the box and he managed to persuade one bishop and he said he would open it on Monday the 11th of July 1927. The press took the bait, and there was great interest. Before the box was opened, there was an hour lecture on Joanna Suffcott, with a crowd jeering, who had paid three and six entrance fee, They all shouting, open the box, amongst much jeering. Finally, the box was opened to what the Times newspaper described as an atmosphere of humorous scepticism. Inside the box was a horse pistol, a dice box, a bead bag containing some coins, a pair of earrings, a diary from 1715, a book of Ovid's metamorphoses, a couple of religious pamphlets, a medal from 1791, a booklet of prophecies and predictions for the year 1796, and some other rubbish, which left the audience in hysterics. The Bishop of Grantham, the only Bishop Price could persuade to attend, said, I'd always been interested, but... It's not very illuminating, is it? The main insight into the stunt came from Price, who said the public had always been fascinated with mystery boxes. If one possesses a box with a history, that's good, but a locked box is so much better. So that's some insight into Harry Price, and it should be mentioned that he became a very popular figure known for exposing frauds by the late 1920s. So, going back to Borley, Harry Price had been tipped off by the Mirror newspaper, and he and Lucy Kay first visited Borley on the 12th of June 1929, telling the Smiths that he was representing the American Society for Cyclical Research, as he was anxious not to get the British Society of Cyclical Research interested in the case. He wanted it all for himself. During Harry Price's first visit, almost immediately a remarkable sequence of poltergeist phenomena occurred. Bangs and crashes, keys and coins thrown around, cats too scared to enter the house. Mrs Mabel Smith later said that she could not help being led to suppose that Mr Price was producing some of the effects. By the evening things had quietened down somewhat, and the Smiths had invited the Bull Sisters to dinner with Price and Vernon Wall to discuss the problem. A séance was held which produced another display of poltergeist activity, all of this being eagerly reported by Vernon Wall to the Daily Mirror. Price getting his name in the newspaper as well. Harry Price had to return to London on the 14th of June, but left Lucy Price to continue the investigations and report on phenomena. Did I mention that Lucy... Lucy Price, Lucy K, I meant to say, was his secretary and probably well, was his lover. When Price left, there was bell ringing. The servants' bells would ring in rooms where there was no one present. It was explained that this may have been due to rats or mice running along the bell wires. Later it was shown that by standing on a chair in the pantry, there was a gap in the ceiling where it was possible to grab the bell wires and give them a shake to set off the bells ringing, which some people would ascribe to ghostly activity. The rectory started to get lots of visitors hanging around outside after the newspaper reports. But weekends carloads of visitors were arriving. One local coach company began running trips to the rectory. The news story was becoming a news phenomenon of that summer and it was reported in foreign newspapers and police had to control the crowds at popular times. To the Smith's delight, by the 14th of July, 1929, the Bishop moved them to a small house in the nearby village of Long Melford. And within a year they moved out the area to Norfolk. It seemed that the Smith's plan to escape the house, they detested by blaming ghostly activity, had worked. But had started a chain of events that people were keen to exploit and made bawley front page news. Twenty years later, in 1949, Mabel Smith told the Daily Mail that there had been so much publicity as a result of the Price investigations that she had dreaded any other questions about Borley. She did want to make it clear that she never had any reason to think that the Bawley was haunted. She said that she was aware of the gossip, but there was no paranormal happenings during her time at the house. Mabel Smith said that the only times there seemed to be paranormal happenings were when Harry Price visited, when such things as loud noises and keys were thrown around. She said that her husband and their guests thought Price was responsible for the effects. She talked about having dinner with Price when the wine turned into ink. Mabel said that they knew Price was an expert conjurer and their maid confessed that she saw Price throwing a coin so she retaliated by throwing some sugar. Mabel admits that the maid produced some of the effects herself when she was bored, but people were reluctant to accuse Price of anything due to his reputation and fame at the time. Mabel Smith said she wasn't sure how many people suspected Price of trickery, but she thought that the newspaper reporter's wall and Sutton both suspected Price, also Lord Charles Hope, Major Douglas Holm and Miss Leadsom, all who came with Price to witness phenomena. Mabel went on to say that she was glad of the publicity of the case, which was partly the reason that they could insist on the move, but the real reason was the dreadful living conditions at the house which they found unbearable. That was the real reason they did not voice their suspicions about Price and they did not deny the phenomena, as they would have done anything to help them move out. After making this statement, there was an attempt at character assassination by Price supporters on Mabel Smith, saying that she was obsessed with the afterlife, is unconsciously untruthful and an unreliable witness, although there is no reliable record of her ever saying anything about paranormal happenings at the rectory while she was living there. Other newspapers were reporting on the case and on the 25th of July 1929 the Daily Mail reported Charles Sutton accompanied Price and Kay to the rectory. The rectory was empty as the Smiths had moved out. This led to an incident where, which Price said was to a fate poltergeist activity and Price did not visit again until October 1931. Price claims he was ill and too busy on other projects. But an alternative explanation being that he was too ashamed to visit and wanted to put time and distance between the incident. We shall examine this incident more fully later on, which has le- become known as the Sutton Incident. In October 1930, the Reverend Lionel A. Foister, who was a cousin to Harry Bull, moved into the rectory. He had a much younger wife, Marian, and an adopted daughter, Adelaide, aged two and a half. The next five years, while the Fosters were involved at the rectory, there was the most eventful and controversial period of paranormal activity at the rectory. It would be profitable to examine some background information on the Fosters. Lionel Foister followed his father into the church And was ordained as a priest aged 26. He was a curate at uh, Yorkshire and then Cheshire before leaving the UK and becoming a missionary in Canada. Before he left he baptized his friend's daughter Mary Ann Shaw who he was later to take as his wife in the autumn of 1922 when she moved out to Canada to be with him after being deserted by her first husband. This marriage may have been bigamous, as Mary Ann's first husband may have still been alive, but Mary Ann had assumed that he died as she had not heard from him. Mary who was 22, had married her first husband when she was 15, when she gave birth to a son, who became known as Ian Greenwood. Ian was brought up by his maternal grandparents. There was some gossip that Lionel had been forced to go to Canada because his family were desperate to cover up Lionel's indiscretions with young girls. Lionel Foster, who Marianne called Lion, lost his fortune in the 1929 Wall Street crash. And this, plus Lionel's poor health, he developed chronic rheumatoid arthritis, the couple were forced to move back to the UK where he took over the job as rector at Borley. It was more of a father-daughter relationship between Lionel and Marianne, but they both seemed fiercely loyal to each other and there seemed affection between the couple. It was a strange setup at Borley, most of which came to light later when a private, investigation, private investigations were made into the life of Marianne Foyster. Marianne thought Adelaide was lonely without other children. She advertised in the Times newspaper for a playmate for her. And as a result, a little boy called Francois, a few months younger than Adelaide, would come and stay at the house. Francois's father would come and visit every weekend at first. Then the father, who was also called, called himself Francois, started to do some odd jobs around the house. He proved useful in the garden and he soon became Marianne's lover. It seemed that Marianne had a series of lovers. It was suggested that Lionel condoned her relationship and may have been excited by them and encouraged them. It's even been suggested that he spied on on them during sex. Lionel would gently uh, castigate to Marianne, calling her his naughty girl. The father of Francois moved into the rectory cottage, but he always ate and sometimes stayed in the actual rectory itself his name was francois dales also known as frank peerless he was described as a strange and frightening man who controlled the foister household when he was there he was thought to be a blackmailer who forced lionel to do as he wanted marianne had told people that she did not did not like Perless very much. Their relationship was primarily sexual. Later, partly in order to escape the dreary life at Borley, during the week Marianne and Perless ran a flower shop in London and lived there as man and wife, returning to Borley at weekends. When the flower shop went bankrupt, Perless left with his son amongst some acrimony. Marianne began to foster children from an Anglican adoption agency. Marian Foster was later to claim that the local gentry, with the exception of the White House family, did not approve of them, the Foisters, as they thought they were too friendly with the lower classes, the rural poor of the village. They thought that Lionel Foister was too friendly with those that that should not be encouraged. For example, he fed the local tramps and let them sleep in the outhouses. He kept an open house... The doors were never locked. Many of the church committees and village organisations would meet at the house for meetings. There were always people at the house. During cold weather the tramps who slept in the outhouses would often seek out the warmth of the kitchen. Lionel adopted stray cats and dogs and loved children visiting. All of this giving ample opportunities for strange figures being seen in the garden and of course strange noises. Later there were suggestions that Lionel Foyster was in such financial difficulties and finding it so difficult to support his family with his illness that he organized a bigamous marriage of his wife Marianne to a Henry Fisher in order to bring a wage earner into the family. Marianne had met Fisher who was a travelling salesman in late 1934. They quickly became lovers At this time Marianne had recently finished with Frank Peerless and was sometimes living by herself in Ipswich. It seemed that she needed to get away from time to time. They married bigamously in February 1935, Marianne duped Fisher into believing that her husband Lionel was her father and their daughter was her younger sister, Lionel going along with the charade. Marianne also convinced Fisher that she was pregnant Fisher, who was away for long periods from work, was further duped when Marianne obtained a baby boy from the adoption agency and claimed it to be their child. Marianne was still fostering for the church adoption agency and there were often strange children staying at the house and this led to local gossip and accusations that there was a baby farm at the factory. In October 1935, Marianne and Fisher moved to Ipswich away from Borley. The adopted baby, that was almost certainly Marianne's, who had hidden, pregn- had, had hidden a pregnancy and given away the baby for adoption. The baby was called John Evemond Emery and was thought to be the result of Marianne's relationship with Peerless. The baby only lived for five months, dying of malnutrition and convulsions. One of the more tragic stories at Borley. In October 1935, the Reverend Foister collapsed in the pulpit at Borley Church and had to spend time in a nursing home before joining the Fisher family at Ipswich as his wife's father. Fisher eventually found out about the deception. Marianne was to say later that Fisher got caught, he thought I had money. I got caught, I thought he had money. She excused herself by saying that she was desperate. They only had Lionel's pension of £10 a month, and his medicine cost £2 a month, and sometimes as much as £8. Although it's thought that she did receive a small income for the, the fostering. By 1945, Fisher's marriage to Marianne had ended. He had periods of mental instability due to a motorcycle accident in his youth, And when he found out about the illegal marriage, he had a complete breakdown. In April 1935, Marianne is thought to have smothered Lionel Foister with a pillow to help him on his way. Almost everyone who has investigated Marianne's past has come to this conclusion. It seemed that she felt compelled that she had to marry an American serviceman in order to leave the UK as a GI bride and start life afresh in America. On the 11th of August 1945, she married Vincent O'Neill, and went to live at a war bride's camp at Tidworth in Wiltshire, while the paperwork was sorted out to allow her to move to the USA. Although the marriage was not to work out, Marianne stayed and was highly thought of working with old people. She died at the age of 93 in 1992. Whatever the truth about Marianne, she seemed a remarkable woman, doing what she had to do to survive. Reverend Foister made a record of a variety of phenomena, which commenced shortly after he took residence. He called it his Diary of Occurrences. But with his reputation as a respectable man of God in question for various reasons, it makes it easier to question his motives. It's claimed that he fabricated the Borley hauntings in order to write a best-selling book, which he thought would lift him out of his financial difficulties. His inspiration was the Amherst poltergeist case, which Foyster would have been aware of, it taking place in Nova Scotia, Canada in 1879, close to where he had lived. The phenomena at Amherst was thought similar to that that had been experienced at Borley during the Foister tenancy. Similar noises, movement of objects, writing on walls and so on. There are other similarities regarding the nature and people involved. The Foisters claimed that they did not know of the book written by a Walter Hubble called The Haunted House at Amherst, but Marianne later admitted that her husband had the book and intended to write a similar book about Borley. Lionel did write a manuscript he called Fifteen Months in a Haunted House, but it was never published. It was a short work, only 42,000 words. At first it was said to be strictly a strictly factual account, with only the names of those involved changed. However, Marianne was later to claim that it was a fictional ghost story, and Lionel would stage paranormal activity, and record people's responses, in order to give... Uh, material for him for his book. Lionel was aware that Hubble had made a great deal of money from his book about the Amherst poltergeist, and he needed to make money. Marianne said that Harry Price was aware that Lionel's book was mainly fiction when he was shown the book on his first visit to the house when he stayed the night. But Price was also shown the diary of occurrences, and it's thought that Foister told Price that the events in this book were genuine, as Foister was hoping that Price would endorse the book that he was going to write when it was completed, perhaps to write a forward to the book. Foyster would have wanted to make use of Price's expertise and knowledge of the subject, and his contacts in, uh, contacts in the publishing world. Price persuaded Foister to lend him his diary of occurrences in order that he could Used some of the material in his own book. He failed to return the manuscript, and when asked for it some months later, Price claimed that he had lost it. It was a second visit to the rectory that Price turned up uninvited with an entourage after hearing of a fire at Borley. This was on the 13th of October 1931. When they would heard Harry was on his way to visit, the foisters were expected a polite social call from just Harry, but he brought an entourage with him which caught the Fosters off-guard and this made them somewhat prickly. Of this visit Price bought a picnic hamper and bottles of wine, an ink pellet was put into the wine bottles, it's not clear who was responsible, it was probably Price as he pulled off a similar trick on the smiths when he visited back in June 1929. But equally it could have been Marianne being mischievous. Price and Marianne Foster had not got on well from the moment they met each other. Marianne said that Price gave her the creeps. On this visit Marianne said that Price was slobbering all over one of his entourage a Molly Goldney. Marianne claimed that she caught them attempting to have sex while looking around the rectory. Marianne seemed to suspect what they were going to do and crept up on them, and was highly amused at catching them out. Goldney developed a deep dislike for Marianne after this, but it's been suggested that this was due to Marianne telling untrue stories about her and Harry attempting sex. During the visit, Price shocked the Foisters by suggesting that he thought the earlier phenomena had been falsified by Mary pa- Pearson, ...who was made to the previous tenants, the Smiths. Price was to say soon after the visit... ...that he thought Marianne was also to blame for the phenomena... ...because it stopped when she was being controlled. Price thought that Marianne suffered from hysteria... ...and was a fantasist. So the visit was not a success... ...and Price did not visit again while the Foysters were at Borley. Lionel Foyster later threatened libel action against Price if he should ever mention him, his family or Borley rectory. This attitude would later change when it suited them both, when they could both profit out of the haunting at Borley. William Salter, who later became president of the Society of Psychical Research, and who lived near Borley, had been keeping in touch with the situation at Borley. Price was anxious to keep him away from the site, he, he did visit. Well Salter did visit and try to convince the Foisters and the Bulls not to have anything to do with Price. In November nineteen thirty-one, Salter wrote to a friend in California. He was also a member of the American SPR. He said that he had been keeping informed about Borley and had visited there, but there was no evidence of phenomena. He was hoping that the SPR could get involved in the case at a later date but it's important that nobody butts in at this time, unless they are sure that the local people will welcome it. He said that there have been two fiascos already in the last three months. In August a professional medium was taken there, and had a long sitting, although producing nothing evidential. The parson's wife, Marianne, had something like a fit, and everyone was much distressed as a consequence. Later Mr Price went down and created a most unfavourable impression, This was his October visit. The parson's wife is a great deal upset. I've tried to ask those involved not to be involved with Price. Salter's intervention caused a storm with Price supporters who claimed that it was nothing to do with Salter, that the SPR, or the the English Society for Psychological Research, is is not a psychic police force. And then rather hysterically likened it to a doctor sealing another doctor's patients. The truth being that Salter was only trying to damp down the publicity. During this period, Price argued that all the activity at Borley rectory could be attributed to normal causes. He wrote to friends saying that he thought that Marianne Foyster was the cause of the unearthly activity, as she wanted to drive her husband away from the house, which is in a very quiet, lonely spot. After Foister died, Marianne gave all his books and papers to the Foy- Foyster's sister, Hilda. Marianne did not think much of Foister's manuscript, 15 months in a haunted house, thinking it was something to keep him amused while he was confined to bed, and it would not, never amount to anything worthwhile. It is assumed that Price got to hear of this and obtained Foister's manuscript from Hilda. Price told a friend, Dr Dingle, in October 1947, that he now owned Foister's manuscript. It's difficult to know for sure if Price knew it was a work of fiction, but he included huge extracts of it in his two books on Borley, and recorded them all as fact. Marianne said that Lyon was responsible for much of the so-called poltergeist activity. He threw objects around to judge the reactions of visitors, and note what they would say. When people left the house, all such activity would stop. The phenomenon stopped completely when Lionel was confined to a wheelchair. Marianne said the village children would also try to manufacture paranormal activity. The house was always open and the toilets were upstairs. There always seemed to be people wandering around the house. It was pointed out that there were ample opportunities for people to produce phenomena. But on the flip side to this, it's easy to realise that if there was genuine phenomena, it may not be recognised as such. The phenomena that was said to occur during the foisters, when they were living there, was wide and varied. There were apparitions, violent poltergeist activity, spontaneous combustion, strange smells, footsteps, bell ringing, wall writing, movement of objects, the ports, and so on. Marianne Foister was an attractive young woman of 32, Lionel was an ill man in his late 50s. He was sick both mentally and physically. His immediate memory was affected. He would forget what he had done or where he had placed something and he would blame the alleged poltergeist, a belief that was not discouraged by Marianne who was happy to gaslight him in order to do as she wished and with whom. Marianne, who was lonely and bored while at the rectory, played on the local notoriety of the building, creating a showers of stones, smashing bottles and the creation of ghostly figures. She became the centre of attention and this made life more tolerable as long as manifestations were taking place. Ian Greenwood, Marianne's son from her first marriage, clearly had issues with his mother, who said had abandoned him at an early age but he came to stay at Boy for some months in 1932. He later told of how his mother and her lover, at that time Peerless, would torment Lionel by pretending to be poltergeist. Greenwood in turn played tricks on them and perfected the trick of making the servant bells ring by themselves, and pretended to be a ghost while hiding in the garden. Greenwood told the SPR that he discovered a length of string hidden amongst the ivy on one of the walls in the courtyard. When he pulled it, it made one of the bells inside the house ring. It was thought to have been set up by Marian or Peerless to assist them in playing tricks on Lionel Foyster. It should be noted here that the bell ringing stopped when the Foysters left the rectory, although some of the wires had been cut by this time. It's also been suggested that Ian Greenwood may be an unreliable witness due to the issues he had with his mother. Marianne was later to say that many of the so-called incidents of paranormal activity were caused by villagers coming and going, sometimes deliberately pretending to be poltergeists. Just imagine a young lad going past the property at the time. The temptation to throw a stone must have been huge. There was also the tramp sleeping in the outhouses, sometimes wandering in the kitchen, the local children writing on walls when using the rectory toilets, after church services, other causes were put down to door slamming due to draughts, roaned activity, jackdaws nesting in the chimney and, and similar things. Marianne does concede that there were events that she could not explain such as footsteps in the building at night and objects that did seem to move by themselves. Judging from what was going on at Borley it must have been very confusing for their daughter Adelaide. Both her parents died in tragic circumstances in Canada. She was adopted by the Foisters, then taken away from her siblings to another country in a different continent, then exposed to all the nonsense that was going on at Borley. Later when the Foisters left Borley, she was sent to boarding school, and after Lionel died and Marianne left her in a convent in Essex when she left for the USA. Unsurprisingly, it's said that Adelaide had unhappy memories of her experience as a young child. But she married and lived in northern England with her children, and if she was alive today, she would be in her early 90s. A regular visitor to Borley while the Foisters were living at the rectory was an Edwin Whitehouse, who would later become a Benedictine monk. He was the same age as Marianne, being born in 1899, and was the nephew of Sir George and Lady Whitehouse who lived nearby and had been friends with the Bulls and knew the history of the house. Marianne was to say later that the wall writings only appeared when Edwin Whitehouse was in the vicinity and she felt that he was in some way responsible either deliberately or unconsciously. Edwin visited the rectory about thirty times when paranormal activity was at its height And he is something of a shrill defender of the haunting, saying that he never had the slightest suspicion that Marianne Foyster was responsible for any of the happenings that he he had witnessed. Although, bear in mind, it's said that he was sexually obsessed by Marianne and Lionel, and he may have been her lover. Marianne said that Edwin and Lionel spent hours and hours together, and they were so close that she suspected a homosexual relationship between them. Edwin was so obsessed with discussing at length religious subjects, and he was be, he was emotionally disturbed. He suffered mental health issues, so he's probably not the best or most independent of witnesses. However, those who support the Borley Haunting argue that Whitehouse was an independent and educated observer who saw phenomena at Borley. An example of the paranormal happenings witnessed by Edwin and which is often quoted in relation to Borley, is the so-called stiletto incident from June 1931, which is included in the Price book, The Most Haunted House in England. The gist of the story was that a paper knife, or a stiletto if you prefer, landed on Whitehouse's lap while he was sitting with Marianne, who was lying in bed with her hands under the covers, meaning she she could not have thrown it. This convinced White House that the house was haunted. It was never recorded if anyone else was present at the time, for example standing outside the room in order to toss the knife into the lap of White House. It seems that White House was quite a gullible person who could be easily manipulated. It should be mentioned that not everybody experienced strange happenings of Bordie during the time of the Foisters. A Canon Lawton spent a month there as a locum with his family in 1933, and in that month reported no strange happenings. Whether well, the Foister family were away at this time, and when the Foister family finally left Borley in 1935, the property was never lived in again for any significant period of time. So that brings us up to 1936. Um, when Harry Price publishes his first book, The Confessions of a Ghost Hunter. Um, So we'll leave part one there, and we'll come back to part two, perhaps tomorrow, starting at 1936. So it just leaves me to say thank you all for listening, and thank you to Damselfly for providing the background music, and until perhaps tomorrow... Goodbye.